This is the Healthy, Wealthy, and Wise Guys Show with Matt and Dr. Iggy, helping you achieve peak health and financial freedom so that you can live a long, vibrant life on your own terms. And now, here are your hosts, Matt and Dr. Iggy. You know, you got to take risk, right? If you don't take risks, you're not going to create opportunity. Literally, I knocked on that door, got the opportunity, and if I didn't get into that program, I wouldn't be in the situation that I am today. Welcome to the Healthy, Wealthy, Wise Guys show. This is Matt. Welcome, Dr. Iggy. How are you, brother? Oh, my God. I am fantastic. <laughs> if you look at my tongue, it's nice and blue, too. I, I know. I think you guys are watching the video. Awesome. If you guys are watching the video, Dr. Iggy, first of all, has a stand-up desk. And so he's always jumping around. He's always he's always, always mobile. Dr. Iggy, show off your blue tongue. Ah! <laughs> I don't want to give away any commercials for this blue tongue, but it's obviously not candy. It was not, you did not just have like a, like a lollipop or anything like that for the the blue tongue that you've got going on there. Um, I'm phenomenal today. Real quick. I might, I might make that blue tongue part of your health tip if you don't mind, but real quick scale of one to 10,000. How are you today? Oh my God, we're going to go close to 10,000. I never did a one to 10,000, but this is fantastic. I mean, I love doing this stuff. Yes, I I love being able to interview people and great people and be on a podcast with you. It's like, this is phenomenal. This is, this is a dream and, and I'm living it. Yeah, I am too. I am too. And uh, today, and today's show was uh, that, that's why I'm cracked up a little bit because today's show was phenomenal, really inspiring. We'll get into that in a second. But before we get into today's show, uh, Doctor Iggy, do you want to go blue tongue? You want to keep blue tongue in your pocket for another show blue for your health in tip? The you pocket. Yeah, in blue the tongue pocket. in the pocket. All right. So you have to. You guys have to listen to another show on uh, Doctor Iggy's health tip and what he consumed healthy wise to give him a blue tongue. Ooh. Let me give you a health tip. Let, let's just start off the, the show. Tip. So I think one thing we all forget we we get wrapped up in this in this world of exercise and nutrition and supplements and we forget the basics. And that's what I want to go into the basics again. And last time I was talking about just the water and the hydration this time, early morning walk or early morning exercise. And that is the key to life is we were meant to move before we ate. We were meant to do things to get that food. So before you take in a bite of something, Walk for five minutes, walk for 10 minutes, walk up and down your stairs and then start eating or drinking. I know you can't even look at me with my blue tongue as I'm talking, but, <laughs> but, but that, that is the key to life. I mean, for me, it, it's all in the morning before I even do my regular workout, I do my morning routine. And what I do is I do 30 burpees. Doesn't take too long. I know burpees are not one of the most enjoyable exercises out there but that's why i do it because they should it call them throw up you to get back they're up. not burpees they're throw uppies for me okay you know it, right. they can do that too but <laughs> just taking a walk five ten minutes to start with before you eat or drink anything will make a huge impact not only on your mental health but it'll make a huge impact on your body and just getting your heart rate up just a little bit you start with five or ten and work your way up to 30 minutes and you're golden that that could be it 
And then you go inside and eat breakfast or whatever you're going to do. I mean, everyone does their own different thing. Why though? So you you said from a, uh, is it a uh, metabolism thing or is it a, why is it that it's important to get your, I assume get your heart rate going, get your blood pumping, whatever it is. Why before you eat first? That is a great question. So the first thing remember is to drink that water, get hydrated in the morning that I was talking about last time. This time it's really basically you're vibrating your body to the planet and you're when you're moving or walking or doing burpees you're reconnecting and not only Mm. that you're getting your heart rate up and you're getting everything moving so you have lymph fluid in your body and that stuff starts moving so you can drain your body starts to drain and then it feels good again because when you wake up we all feel a little sluggish this stuff and it gets your mind working too so is there real science behind it yeah there is but besides the real science behind it it's just good for making you Mm -hmm. feel good yeah i I agree uh and and i i I try to get a workout in before i eat every morning and i find my from an energetic state uh i find that the energy that i exude in the first hour of my of my day is pretty much the energy I'm going to hold all day. Um, you kind of set the standard for, for an energetically for the rest of the day. Um, and that, I love that health tip. Thank you, David. Um, all right, so let's transition over to the, the wealth, wealth tip. tip. All right, we get made you guys, give you guys a longevity thing. Let's, let's give you guys some prosperity. Um, now this is a this is a term that gets thrown around a lot, and that that not everybody knows one hundred percent what it means. The term is net present value. Okay, and then it is important to consider the net present value of any investment that you guys make. Uh, Doctor Iggy, if I told you that you're going to invest in something that returns you two percent for the rest of you, I'm going to give you a two percent investment, right? Mm-hmm. Would you get excited about that? Probably not. But, but here's the thing. What I did not tell you, Dr. Iggy, is for how long it'll take you to make that 2%. What if I told you I could make you 2% in an hour? Ooh. Ooh. Now you What if I told you I could make you 2% in a year? Not as much. Mm. And the reason why that, that, that these things are out there is you need to consider what the net present value of the investment is. What that means is net present value is looking at the investment. If I take all the proceeds I'm going to make and I roll them back to today. So if I put a dollar into something, what is that dollar what is that dollar going to do through the life of the investment? And if I look at the net present value of the investment, meaning like this is a 10-year hole, you know, I'm an apartment building guy, so we own apartment building. Uh, we might hold it for 10 years, might make a bunch of cash flow, might refinance and return a bunch of capital, might uh, might sell it at the end, whatever we're going to do. But what is the dollar that I'm putting in that investment going to turn into through the life of the investment? What is the value of that dollar today as compared to the entire life of the investment? Um this net present value is something there are calculators you do not, there are equations out there and if you're a techie head um that you can use those equations yourself or you can just go and get npv calculators that'll run those numbers for you you got to put in the rate the time it's a big factor we'll talk about time uh, as a as a component on investment in a future uh wealth tip because time is probably the biggest people think interest rate and rate of return are the biggest driving factor no Time is the biggest driving factor in an investment. We'll talk about why that is on a later on a later show. Before today, net present value is a factor that you guys can use. The another the inverse of it is internal rate of return. 
right? Oh yeah. Yeah. That is another factor you guys can use for attorney for evaluating an investment. But if you want to compare investment A in Microsoft stock or investment B in real estate or investment C in Bitcoin, a way to normalize them is net present value and risk factor. Those are the two things that you guys want to use to evaluate things, um, and that. So that that is a that is a brief education on the concept of net present value. You're more than welcome to find it up online. Investopia has a phenomenal definition of it on, uh, to start with out there. And as I said, there are free calculators you guys can get to calculate the NPV for you on an investment. I so, love it. That was a, a great definition and and super powerful. Super powerful. Thank you. Yeah, it's it's well. That, that's that's the benefit. Of, we talked about compounding interest on a prior show. Um, the, the using normalizing factors to weigh out an investment are uh, are that that's what really makes investing powerful. Is, it, it is the ability and the factors that are now that enable you to compare one thing to another. That it's not just should I buy this property that's cash flowing this much or this property that's cash flowing this much. But a lot of times you want to compare you know, Apple investments and, you know, car tires or Apples and Volkswagens, right? Things that are very different and things like NPV allow you to compare things that are very different from each other from a return standpoint. So risk oh, yeah. factor is another thing that comes in, which we'll talk about yet on another show as well, because you can't just look at the numbers. You also got to look at the risk and compare it to what you're looking, what risk you can tolerate in your life as well. But all that is for future shows, David. We can't let all the secrets of life out today, can we? we no, gotta... we cannot. <laughs> gotta hide them, especially. Gotta, well, we are, we're gonna trickle it out, man. We got there's a lot to talk about here, right? Oh yeah. So, so uh, David, phenomenal show today. People have to tune into. We've got uh, Jeffrey Saladin coming on as our guest. Uh, I what I got from this show, and we talked about MPV as well, uh, net present value on the show a bit. Mm-hmm. And uh, but what I got is about like just learning about the the decisions that Jeffrey made when he approached a few uh, forks in the road and how he evaluated them and where he decided to go. And you know, to fast forward to the secret here, uh, you know, Dr. Saladin was able to build up a dental practice to the point where he was able to sell it and make a gargant like a a, a income uh, a sales number that's beyond what what's what uh, what a lot of people can even fathom is possible. But he gave it to us in super layman's terms, very approachable, very very uh, very very easy to understand conversation. So I was blown away by this conversation. What'd you get out of it? I, I mean, I got so much out of this one, and it was absolutely amazing. I, in fact, you just hear him talk most of the time because I just wanted to hear his story, even though yeah. I knew it. I just wanted to hear it. One of the most powerful things is that he said was, you are the example. And and he was talking about him being the practitioner mm-hmm. in the dental practice. He has all these dental practices running. And it was one of those things. How do you keep all the dentists at the same level? And he was the example. So they wanted to, to model him. And mm-hmm. they wanted to be like him. So everyone in his whole business structure was working for the same common goal. And, and yeah. I think that that's what, what is missing a lot in the business world is you mm-hmm. don't have that example. And with him doing that, it, when I saw this practice in, in two, I think it was 2010, when I went to visit him, I mean, it was, it was as smooth as it can get. And he was making it, he was still refining it at that point. And it was, it was awesome. Yeah. And it was incredible. So that's what I got out of it. 
great episode all in um and that and uh, and, and dr saladin takes us through the whole thing and, and, and there was so much to say here that i think we'll have to have dr saladin back on oh, yeah. uh, to talk about like as i referred to in the episode dr saladin 2.0 and meaning like what do you do once you sell but getting us to the cell is what uh, a lot of today's conversation was about so guys check it out be sure to uh be sure to enjoy the episode and uh, by the way guys if you like what we talk about here on this episode be sure to leave us a five-star review on itunes and a review you um just to write up and tell us how amazing and how much you love the show and uh, don't forget to check us out at matt and iggy.com and uh and purple tongue and pink tongue purple uh, blue tongue too uh it'll be it'll be, be purple pink, could be purple next week so yeah. we never know cool enjoy the episode guys welcome to the show today we have one of my great friends dr jeff saladin and I am super excited to have him on. He was a co-resident of mine uh, back in St. Christopher's. I don't know, Jeff, how long ago was that? Was that 18, 20 years ago? Yeah. Unbelievable, isn't it? It is crazy. And I'm super excited because he's done so much stuff. He was an inspiration to me. He He's a leader. He's helped me out in so many different ways. In fact, he helped me get my California license while he was working he let me borrow his car in California in between patients. He got me from place to place. I will never forget it. He gave me a place to stay. Uh, he, he's the kindest human being that I know besides you, Matt. He, he's, oh. he's right up there. And you're still and, not out here. You're still out here surfing. I, we're supposed to yes. go surfing together. Yes, we are. <laughs> and we're still supposed to go surfing, but I like Southern California better for the surfing. And so, with, I mean, he has a huge, huge bio and I, I don't want to get into it right now, but we will get into it because thank you, Jeff, for coming on and, and oh, we welcome. appreciate your time. I don't want to waste any further time with an introduction. So, well, let's you, let Dr. let's let Dr. Jeff. Uh, we'll yeah. let you introduce yourself if you don't mind. So, sure. Uh, what I like to say is, uh, why don't you tell us all about yourself in thirty seconds or less? Yeah, that's going to be tough. But uh, <laughs> you can have forty five if you let, want. Let's, yeah, let's try to let's try to go for it. So, yeah, um, yeah Jeff Saladin, and um, you know, here in Southern California, originally born and raised in SoCal. Uh, you know, uh, a child a child of immigrants, and so I am the. I guess the American dream in some perspectives, a first generation American citizen. Uh, grew up in SoCal and, you know, um, just had a lot of fun down there and uh, attended UC Irvine and graduated from UC Irvine with a biochemistry degree and a bio degree. And, you know, find out that, you know, that's a great degree from a great school, but you couldn't really get a job, right? So I hmm. think my first offer was a park ranger at one of the local, you know, uh, I did not forests. know that. Yeah, it was a park ranger. That was the first thing. And I, it was really depressing, right? So I'm like, this is just not going to work out. So, you know, I thought about graduate school and I thought about medical and, and dental. But, you know, when I, when I finished uh, UC Irvine, I didn't know what to do. I was lost. So for a number of years, I was just hanging around in Orange County, Newport Beach. I lived down there. I was surfing. You know, I was having, I was having a great time. Beach volleyball every other day. It was just great trying to find myself. And, you know, I decided that I wanted to um, learn a little bit about business. And I've always been kind of business inclined, but my family didn't come from a business background. My dad worked for the state. He was an engineer. My mom was a homemaker uh, that spent a lot of time with kids. And I had, a, I had three younger brothers. So we're a very close-knit family. Um, I wanted to learn more about business. So I, um, <clears throat> I hit up a friend of mine who was a commercial uh, a fire and casualty broker in Newport Beach. 
And I said, hey, buddy, you know, look, I, you know, park ranger, I just can't do it. So why don't you help me out? I want to learn more about business. So he said, look, Jeff, you know, what you can do is you can use my brokerage license and you can close deals, firing casualty deals, you know, uh, buildings or whatever the case may be. He gets the residual income and I get the broker, you know, fee. So it gave me an opportunity to learn how to manage people, live in Newport Beach, you know, kind of, you know, feel good. I had, you know, I had a full set of hair, long hair. I was working <laughs> out, you know, surfing. I had a great, it was just a great experience. And, um, you know, after a couple of years, I said, I, you know, I think I kind of understand a little bit about managing people and learning about finance and so forth. And I made a little bit of money. I sold it and uh, or I sold my, my accounts back. And uh, at that time, I was also applying to dental school. And so, you know, I, I you know, took my exams and then I uh, went out and started doing interviews. And I said, this is pretty cool, but you know, look, I'm only going to go to the best schools, but they got to be the cheapest schools too, because dentistry <laughs> was expensive. So I interviewed on the, on the East coast, you know, temple, I interviewed at Harvard, I interviewed at whatever else that was out there, a number of schools. And I got really lucky. I didn't get into UCLA, but I got into UC San Francisco. So that was great because UC San Francisco is apparently supposedly a top-notch school. I guess they get great NIH funding and so forth. But for me, it wasn't really about that. It was that you know, it was in California. I've never lived in San Francisco, and it was cheap. Yeah, <laughs> it was going to cost me very much. You know, yeah. I didn't want to be indebted. It was like you know, if I don't, if I have to pay sixty thousand dollars a year to go to some Ivy League school, forget it. I didn't want to be in debt half a million dollars coming out. It just didn't make any sense to me. So it was either that or me getting a graduate degree or an MBA. I don't know where my life would have went if I didn't go through, through the dental route. So, so that was cool. Got into UC San Francisco, you know, spent, you know, four years out there, you know, at this, at this great school. And, you know, I was pretty much middle of my class, maybe even below middle of my class. I wasn't a top-notch student. We had valedictorians there from all over the country, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, just when I was about to graduate from, from dental school, I'm like, man, I hate this shit. <laughs> you know, I, there's no way I'm going to be able to do this. Um, you know, I did good in my classes. You know, I, clinically, I was very sound, but I'm like, boy, this is a profession of perfection. It's a profession of, of millimeters, even less. I mean, hmm. I don't know if I can do that, right? I need something a little more gross. Right. And, you know, and then the competitive landscape, you know, I realized this back in when did I graduate in 2002, that the competitive landscape was like, you know, there was a dentist in every shopping mall in every corner. There was there's like 200,000 plus de dentists in, in the United States. So I got a little depressed at, out in San Francisco, you know, living in the Sunset District. There was never sun out there. It was always gloomy. You know, I'm like, boy, this is just really kind of weird, you know, and it was just a different city coming from Orange County. You know, San Francisco's old and it's not clean, you know, and at that time it was a it was a different vibe. Uh, it was a much better vibe than I think it, it was now. I, I can't imagine being living there now, but, you know, it was just a, a kind of unique experience. So I decided to apply for an MBA and said, look, let me just do the MBA route. Maybe I can do and become an administrator and manage hospitals, dental facilities, or let me hedge my bets on, on pediatrics. Nobody was getting into pediatrics mm. at the time. It was not a hot specialty. And a lot of people would say, I had some mentors in my, in, in my, pro, in my program that it just wasn't really a moneymaker either. It wasn't a very profitable type of a business. But look, I noticed that you know, the, the stats out there, the census stats out there was that 
you know, the country anticipated a kind of a decline or a flatness on, on child growth population, but quite the opposite happened over the last 10 years. So, you know, there was a lot of residency programs not producing pediatric dentists. And I said, you know what, this might be, I'm going to hedge my bets on this. This might be an opportunity for me. And so I said, let me go ahead and apply and let's see what happens. Uh, because I was really down at the time, you know, I didn't know what I wanted to do. So that was great. That was a good experience. You know, I liked working with children. You know, my mom was a homemaker. She was also a, a teacher, a school teacher for preschoolers. So I always had kids around me. I was the oldest of, of four. And so family was really, really important. I loved working with kids. I loved being around children. And so, you know, I applied and I got my, uh, I think I took an exam. I don't remember what we did uh, when we had to get into a residency, but you know, I wasn't really getting into the schools or getting the interviews that I wanted. So when I interviewed over at Temple, um, I just happened to, I, what I said is, look, you know, I, I'm interviewing at Temple. I think I interviewed somewhere else. And I said, look, there's another program called St. Chris, St. Christopher's. It was associated with uh, Drexel School of Medicine, you know, and, you know, you always got to think outside the box. Don't, you know, don't, don't do what other people tell you to do or what, you know, the programs tell you to do. So I said, you know what, I'm just going to go knock on their door. I wasn't invited. I didn't get a letter from them. Let me go knock on their door. Love that. So I knock on their door. I'm look, I said, look, I'm in the area. You know, I just want, you know, and St. Christopher's is in a rough area. It's in like the badlands of Philly, right? You know, it's like the hood type of a thing. It's um, probably surrounded in Starbucks and tattoo parlors now because Philadelphia mm -hmm. has changed a ton, but I haven't know. been there. It must have been. I was out there maybe a few years ago and I was because I was this living still in the, the hood. Areas. Yeah. yeah, I was still in the rough areas. And oh, OK. So I went out there and I knocked on the door and then the program director was like, a, I don't know, he must have been like 130 years old. <laughs> God bless the guy. I don't know if he, I don't think he's probably not around now, but the guy was. He is around. Are, you're joking. He was 90. He's not working there, but he's around. Unbelievable. He would always say he would always outlive all of us. Yeah. And he out, he outlived a few of us too. And there are some of people in our program yes. that didn't make it very long, but I can't believe that he's still alive. Yeah. So, um, did you physically that. walk, you, you walked I up physically, and physically knocked on I the door? I walked and said, look, man, I love that. Look, I'm here. I don't know if I'm ever going to come back, you know, let me know about your program. So, I mean, he was literally in his eighties at the time, yeah. right? Um, uh, Colostrian or Colostri, something like that. Uh, yes. Italian guy, straight up Italian. I think he was like Cecilia. No, it wasn't Cecilia. He was Northern Italian. You know, he was a very light skinned guy and he was tough. He was, he was, he had a mouth on him <laughs> and he was back, you know, he's still stuck back in the, and uh, I don't know, in the forties. Yeah. How did you he know? receive you showing up on his doorstep, knocking on Cause a guy like that could either love that and love yeah. your moxie love to that. do it, or love he could that. absolutely, why are you wasting my time? Well, yeah. I, I think I, you know, I have to give some credit to the, to the uh, to the, re the head of re the chief resident in that program, his name is uh, uh, his, his name is Dr. Dura Abraham. He was of Middle Eastern descent. I'm of Middle Eastern descent, so he had a great relationship with Dr. Kalastri, the head program director, and just an awesome relationship between the two. Right? He, Dr. Kalastri, loved this guy, and so when he seen me and he asked, "Well, where are you from?" And I said, "Well, this is where I'm from." You know, and, and he said, you know what, you know, if you're anything like this guy, Abraham, you know, you're in the program. And so he said that he would organize a, a method to get me into that program. And so I got into that program just by knocking on the door. So anybody out there, you know, you got to take risk, right? 
If you don't yeah. take risks, you're not going to create opportunity. And, and sometimes opportunity comes knocking on your door, but this is literally, I knocked on that door, got the opportunity. And if I didn't get into that program, I wouldn't be in the situation that I am today. So I got in, it was great. Was I that guy like Dr. Dura to, to Dr. Colostri? No, I wasn't. I was completely different. <laughs> he probably thinks I'm a big asshole. You know, yeah. I don't, he didn't even, he, he didn't even uh, say goodbye when I graduated. <laughs> so, so I got into that program program and I basically ran my own little business in the corner of the residency program. Nobody ever came to visit me. Nobody, I know, you know, the, the directors never came to lecture me or tutor me, but I had a system going. And I was a big producer for them back there. I was making the money. All the assistants loved me. And I was, te- I was teaching myself. I said, man, this is great. This is, this, is, this, is, this is awesome. I lived in the hood. I associated myself with people from the local community. I wasn't in, I don't know where, where it's like North Philly or whatever, the nice part of Philly. I was in That's the rough nice. area. Yeah, you, wherever, you were whatever really the night, bad area. The other part of Philly. Uh, if, if I could pause, I want to unpack a few things here yeah. that you just said, which I thought was phenomenal. <laughs> I, I, I want to like, that's a great story. And I, and, I, and I know the rest of your story that we're only like, you know, maybe halfway, halfway done. You're, 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 uh, you're, you're 30 seconds of introducing yourself here. But like, but what I want to do is I want to underscore a few things yeah, go ahead. Um, that I heard that are phenomenal because I think that if you look at life, there are a few pivotal moments that, you know, forks in the road, if you will. And sometimes we're walking across these forks, you don't even know it's a fork, right? It's like, I'm just going to go right. Like a pivotal moment I heard is like when you were, you know, long hair on the beach doing the insurance thing, like insurance can be a lucrative business and it can be a place where people make a career that could have been a career for you, you know, and you could have just stayed the insurance guy. Um, and that not the, not, and I mean, it's grateful that you didn't, that you went where you went, but that desire to say, eh, let me sell my book back to the broker and I'm going to, and I'm going to go right. I'm going to, I'm going to zig instead of zag here. That's Mm -hmm. phenomenal. The desire to go and walk up and knock on this door and not go to Harvard and walk out. I mean, I'm completely with you, man, to knock out, to not walk in and get like a half a million dollars in student loan debt and likely end up with the same career, just that much further back in, uh, in student loans and maybe not the same contacts. Uh, phenomenal. And, um, well, really just the choice to go to a, a screen. So you kept saying, I want to go cheap, which I think is people don't think about education that way. But in, at the end of the day, education matters less the older you get. It really matters what you've done in life. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that was a phenomenal choice too. I wanted to underscore. And a huge one was just having the balls to just go and walk on the door and knock on the door and be like, hey, I'm I, uh, I'm a, a free agent here. I'm available. Who wants it? You know, yeah, it was definitely um, a surreal experience. It's that whole process. It was it was somewhat comical, but it was yeah. also some of the best experiences of my life. And look, I'll tell you before I got into the program, you know, I was one of the older guys. You know, I yeah. started dental school when I was 26. Everybody else was about 21, 22. So I was a little uh-huh. bit older. And um, you know, the choice to go to to the to back east were 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 really based on some of the friends that I have at, when I was back at UC UC San Francisco. And, uh, you know, I had a really close friend who really, uh, really pushed me to get into do pediatrics. He was an orthodontist. His name is Dr. Kalika, uh, a great guy. Um, he's a, he's a master chess player and I really looked up to him and he was, it was interesting because he was a, a, a Moldovian Jew, you know, and I'm a Palestinian Muslim. 
have met a Palestinian. I'm, I'm a Palestinian. So it was an interesting relationship that we had. And we had a great relationship through uh, UCSF. And he would help me do whatever it takes to, to kind of get by in San Francisco. I was borrowing his car. I was doing all types of stuff. And, and we actually, down the line, when I came back from a residency program, we actually worked together and we built something really great. And we created a lot of wealth together. And so mm. just want to give those divots uh, uh, for for Jan on that. So it was kind of an interesting relationship, you know, have these two people that, you know, politically with people would say, you know, they're so far apart, but we were, we were extremely close and it really worked out well. But look, you know, I was one of the older guys in the program in Philly and I, and look, I didn't come from wealth. You know, like I said, my parents were, were, were immigrants, you know, they came from really humble backgrounds. I still remember the time where you know, when we would go visit overseas that, you know, there wasn't electricity in the house and wow. you had, to, you had to squat to go use the restroom. I mean, yeah, it was under, you know, that area the was hole not, in the ground. Yeah. Yeah. It was not a great place to be, you know, they lived off the land and many of them still do live off the land. Right. So it was kind of like, look, I had, I always felt like the underdog. And I said, look, I had to, I had to make it. I had to be a mentor for my family and my brothers because Ultimately, one of our, you know, one of us probably out of the four brothers is going to make it and we're going to have to take care of one another. Mm. So that was extremely important for me. So I've always been big about, you know, you know, supporting the underdog, minorities, living among the real people mm -hmm. in the area because wealth wasn't the big deal for me. That, you know, that was a byproduct of hard work. It was about staying focused, not getting depressed, right? And having a goal that you can try to attain and doing the best you can do with it and then put everything else in a greater, in a greater power's hands, right? Because there's only so much that you can do, right? So that was very, that's my philosophy. So I, you know, I spent my time in Philly, had a great time, lived with some really roughnecks in the area who took extremely good care of me. And I enjoyed being in that environment. I kind of came from that environment from living in LA, South Central LA area. It was very comfortable for me. Mm -hmm. But, you know, coming out of that program, what I should say is that going through that program, I seen kind of a difference between the West Coast and the East Coast. There was a difference. There was a lot of old school thinking on the East Coast. You know, you want to you want to get by, you got to know the right people to get by. You know, I didn't, that wasn't like that. Maybe my perception back then on the West coast, it probably is, but it was just a different environment. I really enjoyed it. Met some great people. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, people like, like Iggy was there. And Iggy was a unique guy. Cause I couldn't figure out this guy. He you know, is he that. I haven't been able to figure him out either, but <laughs> yeah. you know, he, Iggy was kind of like the Switzerland of the residency program. It's like, he never took sides and he was diplomatic with everybody. You know, and that's probably one of the reasons why, you know, I probably keep in touch with Iggy more than anybody else that I had a relationship with during that program. And, you know, it's really important to be open minded and not to be, you know, too opinionated, I guess, and kind of look at the world as look, the world is global and we are more similar than we are different. Right. We all have the same ambitions. Right. We mm -hmm. want to take care for ourselves, our family, our children, do good for community, et cetera, et cetera. So. You know, here I am in St. Chris, cranking the way in the bank and the back, you know, making that residency program wealthy because I'm like, what the hell is this guy doing? He's just cranking them out. And I decided that I wanted to start a dental practice while I was in my residency. Hmm. And so what I did. Are you allowed that, to do that? 
Well, you can do anything, I guess, right? Like, so, you can do whatever you want yeah. in life, right? But I mean, like, yeah. if you're in residency, uh, I, again, this is my non-dentist over here between the two of you guys, right? Um, if you're in residency, are you fully, uh, like, are well, you fully licensed as yeah, a DMD? Yeah, you came out of, a, you came yes. out of a, a DD, DDS or DMD program. So you had a, you had the certificate. You, you, you can hang the shingle. Okay. To, to be a general practitioner, right? Okay, cool. So, and so what I did is uh, during my second year, my end of my first year residency, I signed a lease back in California, you know, a 10 year million dollar lease in a city that I never spent time in. I just passed through from San Francisco to Lake Tahoe. It's called Sacramento, California. Hmm. Never lived there. And I lived in SoCal, you know, it's either I was going to go to so back to SoCal and open an office in, in Newport beach, which I'm glad I didn't, or I was going to go overseas. I was actually thinking about opening up something in Dubai. I knew you were going to say Dubai. Yeah, because I just wanted to be different, right? I wonder what life would have looked like if you had done that, man. Well, I, you know, maybe look the same. It may have maybe. looked the same. Might be yeah. better. I mean, I don't know. Who knows? I mean, yeah, but a whole knows, different thing. Right? But yeah. look, I'm happy where I'm at now. Oh, sure. So I decided to open something in Sacramento while I was in residency, and I signed a million dollar plus lease to do that. Retrospectively, looking at that, I would not have encouraged that to anybody because that was that was high risk, right? Cause I didn't understand what it meant to sign a lease, a 10 year lease with multiple options. If you break that lease, that landlord can come after you for those 10 years of, of lease payments, right? You know, I didn't know all that type of stuff, but you know, um, a friend of mine and myself, the gentleman I mentioned earlier, we did some due diligence. Uh, you know, he was back in, uh, he was still in California doing a, uh, a, a ortho program at UCSF and I was in Philly and, and we said, look, hey, this area in Sacramento, it's called Natomas, is one of the fastest growing suburbs in the country, you know, and he had some connections with, with some of the builders out there. And I said, look, you know, I'm going to do this. Let's do this. He took a, he took a, a lease, uh, you know, uh, uh, he became a tenant in one building and I became a tenant in that same building next door to him. And when I got out of the residency program, it was pretty much all built out and ready to go. And so, you know, that was my probably, you know, I think one of the first risks that I that I took through this journey was knocking on that door, you know, at St. Chris and, and, and just convincing the director to bring me in. And then I think the second biggest risk was dropping this crazy, you know, uh, note, you know, the signature on it ain't a million dollar lease, right? Yeah, it's um, a million. It was probably more than a million dollar lease over 10 years. And then getting that thing going and managing that while I was in residency, nobody does, nobody <laughs> does that. I'm probably the only who's ever done that. Nobody does that. And, you know, when my program was done, I went out back to California. I lived in a city that I've never lived before. You know, I was working for somebody, a GP in that particular city. And every other week I was flying down to Southern California to work for someone else. And at the same time, I was building this practice. Can I ask a question? Why, why, why Sacramento? I don't know if we got to that because it's a city you've never been to. You said it was on the way between Tahoe and San Fran um, in that for those, for yeah. those that don't know. And it probably was nowhere near as big as it is now. Sacramento's yeah. grown because of the blow up of California, right? Yeah. Um, in that. So why did you choose Sacramento as a location? Well, Sacramento, like I mentioned before, was, was one of the fastest growing, some of the suburbs were one of the fastest growing suburbs okay. in the country. So that was real big. And then you know, and I, you know, I had help from friends to, to direct me in that, di in that direction, but I, I think this goes back a little bit more to my background. So I never felt like I belonged in any city 
in my entire life. Now that could be a, wow. that could be something that came because, you know, my parents were immigrants, you know, and um, never really feeling a part of something. And then also leaving the house when I was 17 or 18 to go off to college and then never really come back to the home, to the family home, you know, and living in San Francisco and living in Philly, I never felt connected. And it's really hard to build strong friendships and relationships when you're only there for a few years, right? So I kind of got used to it. And the, the second thing was that I didn't want to have to struggle and I didn't want to have to hustle. I know I could hustle if I wanted to, but I didn't want to. And I definitely didn't want to do it in pediatrics when you're dealing with children, you're the gatekeeper. Mm. You're, you're, you, know, you, you know, being in pediatrics, was a, a mixed blessing because I didn't bank that it was going to be a, one of the hottest specialties by the time I came out of a program, but I wanted to be a part of something where I didn't have to upsell anybody and I can get the rewards, the daily rewards from children, giving me hugs, <laughs> saying great things to me and looking at this in my perspective as a form of charity, yeah. that I'm putting smiles in children's mouths. Money was never, a priority for me on this. It was a, simply a byproduct that happened to come by, you know, that it was in my destiny, right? Mm. So, so when you put that into perspective, I could have opened anywhere in the world, right? I yep. was thinking about Dubai. I was thinking about back SoCal. I was thinking about this city in Sacramento. And so that's what I did. Came back and, you know, you know, I was not heavily indebted because I picked the right schools. You know, St. Christopher's program was paying me to go there. And they should have paid me a lot more because I made, you know, we produced quite a bit out there. But <laughs> they should have rev shared with their Well, they, they did pay you. They did pay you. Yeah, you got paid. I got paid. So you got paid more than we did. Well, I maybe. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. Hey, that's well, on the, the lowdown there. Just for a second. <laughs> there was a couple things that you brought. Number one, you, when you were practicing dentistry, you were like a superb dentist. And so you're selling yourself a lot short. And I think I just want to make sure that the listeners know how good you were. I mean, he was a great dentist. And and let, let's you. not, uh, I mean, I would come over and look at his work. I'm like, Jeff, this is really good, man. He's like, ah, oh, it's not perfect. I'm like, no, this is well, really, really good. Yeah. And, well, you and know, so, Right, go yeah, for it. Through that residency program, I mean, it was sort of an incubation opportunity for me where I, I'll tell you this, I refined so many techniques based on efficiency to deliver that I took with me to my practices. And that those were the fundamental reasons why my practices grew with the gross profit margins that they did and how fast they did and what really commanded the total enterprise value of that that corporation when I took it to market in 20, 2018, but it all started there all thinking about, let's not, let me not follow what my instructors were telling me because a lot of them didn't have successful practices. No, I'm sorry. They were great guys, but in the business world, they didn't do really great. They maybe didn't have very great, maybe people, people skills. I mean, you have to put your feet in other people's shoes to understand them. Right? So when I met people, I was very intrigued by where are you from? What's your background? Mm. What language do you speak? Oh, and then I would learn about it and I would study about it. And if I knew about it, I'd talk about it, you know, about things that I knew were personal to them and their cultural background. Cause I educated myself. I was really interested in learning about people. 
about their food and so forth. So I would always have a great conversation with people while refining my techniques for efficiencies and things like that. And yeah, that really was the kind of the incubator of taking this product out and putting it in California and growing a big business model uh, based on that. So let's, so, let's, let's uh, dissect the California uh, growth. Was that, so you, you opened up a single office in Sacramento. Yeah. Um, was that a, a getting techie and I'm the real estate guy here. So getting a little techie, uh, yeah. how many square was that office and how many chairs did you have there? That first office we did was in Natomas and uh, boy, it's been a while. Let's see. It must've been uh, over, it was over 3000 square feet, just okay. under 4,000 square feet. Um, it was, uh, you know, a, a good uh, uh, price per square foot, you know, with the triple net and all that type of stuff. It, it was fair. The only challenging part for that practice was the build out because this is my first build out. And now you, you look at on top of that million bucks, you did all the fit out yourself. So, you know, I mean, you know, you know, we signed the lease there and I had to go and build this space. It was just yeah. a concrete slab with walls. Right. And so that was a big learning experience. And that was obviously my most expensive office in terms of CapEx investment. Right. You know, yeah. as I grew over the years, we were building offices for literally half the price of my first office because we refined everything. I can talk about more about that later, but I basically cut out middlemen throughout the years where I was procuring everything. I was building everything. I was doing everything in-house. I was a big fan of Jeff Bezos and, and Amazon <laughs> cutting that middleman out. And that's what I did, you know, yeah. over the years, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself, but I would literally have relationships in Shanghai and ship containers over. I was, I was in the freight forwarding business Wow. For 13 plus years, <laughs> customs and everything. Going direct all the way out. Going right? direct and everything, right? And but that's you, know, the, you save a ton of markup that way, right? So yeah. the I'll first tell time you right you now, I mean, I mean, you're you're yeah. nuts if you're if you're buying disposables and consumables from some of the big well-known vendors out there that try to upsell you and say, hey, we're gonna take really good care of you. I'm like, right, you are really good. <laughs> sure, I'll sure do it my are. way and save 50, 60, 70 percent off say consumables and disposables, you know, and then we got into uh, procuring, you know, radiological equipment and, 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 you know, different type of arms of the business, but it helped me refine that business model. So when I came in and to Sacramento, it was pretty expensive, right? And I needed to get money to do that. I yeah. didn't have money. So I went to my mom and my dad and my cousins and nobody wanted to help me hmm. because why? Because, you know, you just, you don't know what you're doing, Jeff. No, you're new. You, know, you're, you're, you don't know what you're doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you're not a business guy. So my dad. Where'd you get the money from? Well, where's that? I mean, oh, where, yeah. where does a rising uh, dentist get the fit well, out money from? Well, I'm very fortunate, right? Because my biggest investor, not just in my business, but in my life was my mother. Wow. And, you know, my mom, and my dad were separated at the time. I was the oldest son, or, you know, my youngest son, my, my youngest brother was 17 years younger than me. So I had, I had a lot of pressure on me and no one would help me. My mm -hmm. mom's uncles wouldn't help, you know, and my dad wouldn't help. It was kind of like, just, Hey, just go get money from the bank. I'm like, look, I can't get money from the bank. <laughs> so yeah. what I did was I got an SBA loan at the time. Yeah. And SBA loan requires you to put up at least about 20% upfront, at least at the time. SBA loans are actually pretty, you know, they're, they give you an opportunity, but they've got a lot of fees associated with mm -hmm. it and so forth and so forth. So I need to come up with 20%. So my mom said, you know, Jeff, I will support you. And if, you know, I'll do anything for you. And my mom, you know, it's like any other mom, right? She'll right. do anything for her child. 
My mom always believed in me. My mom always used to tell me, Jeff, you're different than everybody else. You're That's different great. than my other children. There's something different about you. And I, you know, I guess that's the case. I mean, I've heard that not, not just once, but many times before. Now, yeah. I mean, a little bit stubborn, but I do things a little bit differently. So she allowed me to take a line of credit on her home. And, and granted, you know, you know, we were not wealthy people. You know, we were low, lower middle class, to say the least. And then my mom and my dad separated, and that made it very difficult. And my mom was taking care of all of the kids living in one of in, in one of the houses that my dad owned. He had two homes. One was a rental. We took the rental. And she was raising everybody. And my mom didn't have a formal education. She wasn't a career person. She was a housemaker. So it was really hard. And the fact that my mother allowed me to take a line of credit out, it says everything, right? This, these, these are the moms. They are... You know, we, what, what, as we say in my tradition, paradise is at the feet of your mother, right? I mean, you know, your, your mom like is, is above everything. You know, if you, if you, you know, in our tradition, we say, you know, who is most important in your family, your mother, your father. And, you know, the reply would be your mother. And who's the second, your mother, who's the third, <laughs> <laughs> who's the fourth. Oh yeah. You're, 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 your dad. And it's true. Right. right. I mean, we all have a relationship with our mother. So she was the biggest investor. And I, I mean, she and she hit it big. I mean, she she hit it. You know, she hit it big. So she really helped me, took a line of credit out, you know, with the SBA loan. And, you know, and miraculously, I'll tell you, miraculously, you know, was able to get through it because there are so now being in the business. And being in with practices that struggle or, you know, mm -hmm. acquiring practices that went through bankruptcy, there were practices like mine because they were mismanaged. There were so many things that could have gone wrong mm -hmm. that didn't. Right. So I, you know, I truly believe that everybody has their, their, their allocation set for them in this lifetime and you need to accept it, but do the best you can do through life because you don't know what's ahead of you. Yeah. You don't know what that is, but you accept what you have. And when you have hardship, you say, you know, I'm very appreciative of, the, of that hardship because there's something good that's going to come out, out of it. And when you have everything going great for you, don't forget to say, I appreciate the goodness that has come to me, right? Yeah. That's very important. We often, we often like pray for God when we're down and out, but when we're living that good life, you forget, forget that prayer. About it, right? You forget the we prayer. Forget about those prayers. Yeah. So, I mean, whether you're, whether you're religious or spiritual, I mean, you have to understand. You know, we don't use that much of our capacity in our brains. That you know, something else is driving this. And so, you know, I I try to be appreciative of what I have and work hard. So that's what I did. That's brilliant. Brilliant office. Right that's right off. I didn't pay myself for the first two years. I paid my employees. They were first. At the first year, first year and a half. I slept on the floor of my friend's home. The gentleman I mentioned to you that we opened up next door to each other. He had a house in that city. I slept there for a year and a half on the floor wow. until I got my feet up, made sure I got my employees paid. And, you know, the, the, the location was great. It skyrocketed. And I think within uh, two years, we opened our second location in, in San Francisco, out of all places in the Mission District. And, you know, uh, and continued on and to grow at some point, I think three years in, I asked myself a question and said, you know, what kind of a dentist do I want to be? I'm actually doing pretty good. Maybe I'll just keep one or two practices 
and just do like what a lot of other dentists do, you know, enjoy the, the, the fruits, you know, of all your labor. All right. So that's where, that's where, (laughs) and I want to bring this up. So I reach out to Jeff right around that time. And it's like, what, 2009-ish or, yeah. or something like that. So we're already in a recession. And I, I'm i like, uh, Jeff is willing because I want to get my California license, but I have to go out there. I have to get fingerprinted there. I have to do all these things. And he's kind enough to take care of all this stuff while he's working in, in the dental office. But not only that, he's willing to to put me up in his house. So we he picks me up in his car. He's, I mean, this is like a super busy guy. He picks me up. He could have gotten, I could have taken a taxi or whatever. I don't even know if Uber was around back then, but I uh, I mean, it's Northern California. So maybe they had it. Mm -hmm. And so he picks me up in his car and, and then we go at the end of the day, we go to his house. And the most miraculous thing was I went in and he's like, I saw these other people living there. And so what he was doing is he was in, and you can explain it better, Jeff, but you were subleasing your house basically to cover the mortgage. So you're talking, he's already successful as a dentist and he's already, he's not obviously spending more than he makes. He's doing the opposite of most dentists. Not only that I'm driving around the neighborhood. Most of the houses were for sale or foreclosed on because this is now at a, a time and uh, that uh, the market wasn't doing so well there. No. And so he was probably the only one actually making money on his house and using his house as an asset, not a liability. And I think that that's a powerful point. So he's making money all across <laughs> the the way. Yeah. And, uh, and then a, a big point is that, that how he took care of me and how kind he was to me. He didn't have to do all these things, but this is now, he, he's super busy and he's, he's like, take my car, do this, do that. Then he drives me at the end of the day to San Francisco so we can sit on the top of a bar and look down on San Francisco. And I'm like, oh my God. And I'm like, I, I felt like I was fun. in heaven and, and I'm super <laughs> grateful for that. And I, I think everyone should know and I think you're, I don't know if they're your ex-employees or, or, or your ex-partners, but uh, they, I, I'm sure they feel the same way that I do about you. So I'm eternally grateful for you. So you can continue with your story. I just wanted to break it in right there. Unless Matt, you have another question. Well, yeah, I, I wanted to, cause I think that, that the, la- there, the, I'm sure there were lessons that I want to get out to the audience that you had picked up in office one. Um, as you scale to office too. And any entrepreneur that scales a business is like, you know, you can't, as you know, you got to bump into walls as you grow. And it's like, I don't know if you figure this thing out and stuff like that. Um, and then before you know it, you got a really good playbook that you can apply over and over and over again. Right. Mm-hmm. So what were some lessons that you carried from dental office one that when you opened up the one in the mission di- district in San Fran, um, when you carried to that, what were some of the the ahas that you carried over and on top of, like you said, probably not hiring a GC to do all the work for you. Yeah. Probably you had, you found a way to like, Oh, let me cut out a lot of middlemen here, but what else uh, with it staffing or whatever else had you brought yeah. to office two and forward? Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, you know, that, that's an evolving question, right? Because mm-hmm. you're always um, subject to challenges as you scale. And, you know, if you had, if you put a playbook together, that work really good for three or four or five offices, 
that may or that may or may not typically won't, won't apply once you get to uh, you know ten offices, and so you're constantly evolving, and you're limited by technology. You're limited limited with bandwidth and 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 people power, right? So those are all very challenging things, and you know those that do it better than others, and there isn't a perfect formula that mm. can get through it, the through the struggle because it's a struggle no matter what, mm-hmm. you know. You know, if they have an end goal or end game, you know, that's what they that's what they do. It's it's really controlling chaos. You know, it's 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 dealing with increased entropy each and every time you open an office. And so I think for me, you know, when I was, you know, around the time when, when Iggy came by, I wasn't I wasn't as scaled as I was, you know, later in the years. And you know, I had made a personal decision that I didn't want to just stick around with my one, two or three locations, just like the majority of dentists out there, that I didn't care about money. I didn't care about, well, I cared about money. I I, I shouldn't say I don't care about money, but it wasn't the driving force. The driving force for me was, I didn't want to get comfortable in the situation that I was in because I would become complacent. Mm. And I was too young to become complacent because when you become complacent at a young age, you get depressed. Yes. And you get you get lost. You didn't want yeah. that. I liked that I had a goal that was kind of far out there that can continue to drive forward because you know I don't want to be down. We've all been down before. You don't want to be in that situation. And so, you know, you know, I knew that there was going to be challenges, but I made a decision to say I'm going to want to do something that no one else is doing. I'm going to scale this because this is a niche specialty. There's not very many pediatric dentist in the state of California at the time, there's probably only 400 of them, right? Nobody wanted to treat the patients that I treated. At that time, I was mainly taking commercial plans, commercial player payers who would pay well. Certain socioeconomic groups of people would come in for that. And I said, this is not where pediatrics is going to be. The future of pediatrics is going to be able to take care of those that don't have access to care, mm. that are underserved, underprivileged, that have means of transportation and are, are covered by the state, state managed plans like Medicaid and so forth, right? And you know, if you fast forward into the future 10 years in the state of California, you know, almost 60% of pediatric dental beneficiaries are covered under state programs. Hmm, why, would wow. you want, why would you ignore that? You know, if you're looking from a business perspective, why would you ignore that revenue source? Let all the other pediatric dentists do their boutique crap and struggle and work till they're 65. I wanted at that time when Iggy came, I wanted one thing. I wanted to create options for myself if I ever wanted to retire or leave this line of work. So I just wanted to create options for myself where if I wanted to, I could exercise those options and leave the business. I did not want to be stuck in the profession 55, 65, 70, like a whole lot of other people that their money's in the stock market, it crashes, they have to go back. I didn't want to do that. So I said, look, I will work seven days a week, 14 hour days, whatever it takes. I've done it before and I'll do it again. I have other people that look up to me. I have family that look up to me. I will be a provider for them and I will be a provider for my community. And (laughs) that was my drive. And so when you, you once you have that drive and that ambition, and, and, and the intentions are clean intentions with a clean heart, and you're doing it for the right reasons, then 
people recognize that. See, that's the thing. When patients come and see you personally, they can recognize that in your intentions. And that's reflected in your business model and how it's scaled. If another dentist that's in your corporation, they, they portray that as well. And people like that. You don't have to nickel and dime people. You be straightforward with people, mm-hmm. honest with people. And they will remember and they will come back to you because you're a trustworthy person. That's it. And then I knew that money would just come, come to me. So how did you scale that? Because that, that's, first of all, that's phenomenal. I love the yeah. provider mindset mm-hmm. that I'm here to provide for my community, my people, my family, my everyone. I will, I got you, you know, mm-hmm. I, I step into my umbrella and you will be covered. I love that. Um, how do you, I, you did, right? So how did you convey that? Because I get, you can't duplicate, um, uh, you know, Jeff Saladin, but you did, right? Like you convey your, your other dentists that are running your offices did it. I, I get you scaled out to, mm-hmm. uh, however many off, how did, how many offices did you scale out to at, at your peak? I think when I, when I took it to market in 2018, I think we were about 18 leases, okay. 18 wow. signed so leases. How did you convey leases? to those other dentists that were running those practices as well, that provider mindset? So I think, you know, it's, 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 you, you are an example, right. That people look up to. And so yeah. uh, every dentist that ever came through my office, spent time with me, mm. understood my philosophy. And for the most part, those that really liked it stuck, stuck around and they kind of practiced a lot of those techniques yep. uh, w- when they were, would go out to a different location, do their work. So I think it was, a lot of it was mentorship and just being the genuine nature of, of working with them. Like, look, I understand where you came from because I was there. We, you know, we went to the same schools or we went through the same process. I know what you're thinking. And look, we're going to do this together. And I'm going to be able to, and I'm going to want to make you feel that this is a career option for you. That comparative to opening up your own practice, you're not going to have to put in the capital risk. You know, you don't have to put in the time risk. And I'm going to pay you just as good, if not better mm. than if you went to sole proprietorship. And look, for the, uh, many of my doctors at the peak, pediatric dentists were taking home, uh, you know, uh, compensation packages o- worth over a half a million dollars. Holy cow. Five hundred, five hundred fifty thousand. I think one of my top guys was almost making six hundred thousand dollars a year. That's great when they're not, but when they're not on the when they're not owners and they're still making. And they're that. not, and they're not That's owners. True. And you know, this the state average was like two hundred twenty-five. You know, yeah. I don't know. So That's we, great. but I told them, look, you will work extremely hard in my practice model, mm-hmm. but you will get the rewards. And I would tell them, look, you know, opportunities only last for so long. So work hard save your money and invest your money in passive investments. Oh, you know, wow. If you want to go and you want to open up your own practice in the future, fine. But understand what net present value analysis means. Take the two opportunities, break it out, do it an NPR on and see what makes sense. Look at your return on investment. And look, everybody that's ever done well out there, typically they do well from real estate. No. That's why I said, look, <laughs> I said, but you're making a lot of money now. That might change. The state might change reimbursements. The state might have a deficit. No, the the government may not pass certain bills year over year. Work your butt off, save, and put it into passive investments. That's what I would do. You know, you want to do what I did? Fine. But my goal is different. It's not opening up a dental practice. My goal is to create an option for myself down the line to grow this, scale it, take it to market, and then do what I want to do, right? So- 
Do you see uh, the results in in and uh, in, in, in preaching that to your your dentist? Uh, you know, I, I, my my guess is you keep track of all of them now. Mm-hmm. Uh, it seems seems like you would. Um, uh, do you see the results in that in that mindset to them in in preaching to them to invest in net present value and and focusing on their wealth on on their because again this is a healthy wealthy wise guys show right so I love that you yeah. brought up wealth on your own right so um, do you see the result in that in their in their livelihood now? Well, look, a lot of them have done uh, a lot better, I think, uh, after coming on board with me. In particular, one of them, the one that was um, making that, you know, $500,000 a year compensation package. Interesting story. Him and I went to UC Irvine together. We were close friends. Uh, That was years before we became dentists. He happened to become a pediatric dentist. I became a pediatric dentist. We hadn't talked for about 10 or 12 years. He calls me up. He's in SoCal. And he says, Jeff, how are you doing? I heard you're doing pretty well up there. I said, well, great. Good to hear from you and so forth. He said, Jeff, I need help. Hmm. I'm like, what's going on? He said, I put a million and a half dollars into building this phenomenal dental practice in SoCal. And um, I'm, I'm borrowing money to keep myself afloat. Wow. So I said, hey, look, buddy, you know, he was a close friend of mine. I said, look, give me all your numbers, send me all your numbers, and I'll, I'll come back to you. And I'll tell you what you need to do. He gave me his numbers. I called him back. I said, look, this is not working out. You're borrowing money from your family. You're putting money out of your pocket. You know, there, this might be just not the right business decision for you, or there might be some issues with managing here. And I said, look, stop paying stop paying the landlord, stop paying your vendors. He was indebted with Henry Shine and all these guys, these, all these predatory type practices that vendors do out there. You know, they have a finance arm, they sell you all the equipment. They say, yep. people are gonna line up all, it's all predatory in my opinion. It's all Jeez. really bad. And I have my opinions on that. That's why I never dealt with them. I did my own thing. So I told my buddy, I said, just be done with it. That's what he did. I went in and I negotiated um, with the, uh, you know, the lenders on the equipment and everything I negotiated with them. And I bought back that business incorporated into my business model for 10 cents on the dollar. So Holy we got wow. a $1.2 million tenant improvement build out for 120, $130,000 brought him in, mentored him the next day. We're coming into my company. He was making more money than he did when he was running his own practice. Eventually he moved up to Northern California with me, became the biggest producer and making the money that he's making. Ugh. We're still very close friends. I see him every, every so often. And I'll always support people like that. I'll always support my friends to make sure that they are successful because if they are successful, I'm successful. Yep. Not necessarily monetarily, but successful in terms of peace of mind and understanding we live a short amount of time in this life. What did we do in this life, right? And I, I feel like we're going to be accountable. I feel like my personal belief is I feel like there's going to be a hereafter, and I better do the right thing, right? Sounds like, he, it sounds like he changed his life. It sounds like he changed his life. I mean, like it sounds like he was on a freight train to bankruptcy, uh, you know, and and probably breaking a lot of his family's finances too. Um, and uh, well, he did. And, he did file bankruptcy. He did. This yeah. is his second. Time oh, okay. he got there. He okay. Did. I helped him uh, get a house. I put a down payment on, on his home up here. He eventually paid, paid me back, but I was a sign, signer on that to get him going. And he's doing great. No, that's, no, that's what I mean, but, but there's now, right? So he filed bankruptcy and all that then, and, and he probably maybe was good, wasn't going to make it out of where he was at um, knows, until yeah. you came in and, and uh, took, a, took a whole nother set of eyes on it. That's awesome. Yeah, so Can I think go- that, that type of mentorship, 
I think that stayed with these types of practitioners and those high producers are still with the company, even though I, I, I've sold to private equity. Um, they are still with the company. Uh, there are many other doctors with similar situations. There are two doctors that started as assistants with me and I encourage them to become doctors. They were foreign trained doctors coming from, some of them coming from, I mean, if you listen to my story, you should hear these guys' stories coming out of a, out of the war, not oh, knowing. We got to have they, him on then. Oh yeah. You, this guy's great. I mean, this yeah, guy, so you got to we'll have him on. on. Great story. I want him on the show. Oh. Bring it. Just the total American dream. I mean, now, Jeff, total- did you, did you take any of like your, your dentist and make them partners or give them any equity in the business? Yeah. Or so did you, did you talk about business, right? So look, I mean, marriage is always tough, right? Yes. We all, we, you know, I don't know if you guys, I mean, you're married. I don't know if you're married, Matt, but you know, it, it is. Yes. You know, okay. You are. I thought you said fourth, fourth time. Yeah. <laughs> no, 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 no. No, no, no. Just hold up my wedding band. Uh, no. Uh, oh, no, no, no. One and done. That's it. Uh, one, look, one, one wedding is all I need. Look, uh, so, but yeah, go ahead. You see, it is, but but equity is like a it's yeah. like business marriage, you know. Yeah, it is. It yeah. is. And so, look, I I've had opportunities where associates wanted to partner with me, and I, when I didn't provide them that opportunity, they would they would do their own thing. Um, look, I you know I don't know. Back in two thousand and seven or, or earlier, I took a trip out to uh, Shanghai in China. Okay. And um, uh, that's when I started my procurement side of the business and do freight forwarding and, and bringing in containers really to the dental business. And <clears throat> what I admire about the Chinese people is that, you know, I came in there with preset ideas of what Chinese people are based on mm-hmm. Chinese Americans here, and they couldn't be any, diff- any more different, right? Um, they had a work ethic that was extremely strong. They were very proud of what they were doing and the people who I'm still friends with now, I, you know, when they send their kids out of here, I take care of them. Um, they came from very, very humble and modest backgrounds where they would, you know, split an apple. They would not see an apple for months. And, you know, that was part of their dessert, you know, and then see what they were doing. I really was really inspired by that type of philosophy. And there are pros and cons to that. There's a lot of things that I don't like about the political system in China. But one thing they do very well is that their one party system got things accomplished because when I was there, they were starting their infrastructure for the bullet train system. And I think what it wasn't even 10 years that the entire country was intertwined with bullet trains so they can bring up the poor, bring them up to the middle class so they can start being not just manufacturers, but innovators and start competing with the United States, right? And we go back to the US and you see about all this bureaucracy and you got to check with this, you got to check with this person. And we're trying to build a bullet train in, in California. And, and it's probably not going to get done until my children are middle-aged people. That is not right. That doesn't make sense to me from a business perspective. So I did not want to partner with anyone. I wanted to be the one party system in mm-hmm. this business model, but I paid my associates so well that they were considered partners in some respects. Right? In some ways, you were giving equity in that sense because yeah. you're you're the uh, the you can give equity in one of two ways, and that's through like a K one direct you know ownership of the company kind of yeah. thing, or you can give equity by uh, you, you know in my company I give responsibility and I give a, and I, and um, you know for for employees anyway I give responsibility and paychecks. 
um, mm. and that. So if I can give you uh, more money in payroll and, and more sense of ownership, maybe not direct ownership, but feeling like you own it yeah. and maybe not feeling like I got to be over your shoulder every, you know, every second, maybe you're not on the, your name's not on the company, your name's not on the shingle. Um, but uh, I think it's, I, and in some that's ways, exactly, that's exactly yeah. what we did. I yeah. mean, they, they, they probably felt like they owned it. Yeah. They probably oh, oh. felt like it was partly their company because of what they were being compensated and because the level of trust and responsibility and yeah. uh, followed all the way back to the principles of the big umbrella or yeah. the, you know, um, the, you know, what, what you've created, the culture you created. Yeah. They probably felt like they owned that too. Well, definitely. Uh, you know, per site location, they were masters of their ship. We didn't oversee their clinical techniques because poor clinical techniques will come back to us. We would see it obviously. So we didn't oversee that. We just provided them in an environment that was highly efficient and uh, allowed them to be, to to work at the top of their license and allowed their mid-levels to work at the top of their license. And my structure was really different to see high volume patients in the Medicaid environment. You need to have very, very efficient mid-levels and mid-levels that worked at the top of their license. So we maximized what they were able to output so that the doctor, all they do is spend 20 minutes in the restorative room and a few and a couple of minutes in the open bay talking to parents. We made everybody as efficient as possible to get to those levels where they were producing, you know, 10, 15, 13,000, $15,000 days, right? And so, and they were making a percentage off of that. And they were getting um, uh, um, uh, competitive, uh, I should say it's what it's called, uh, uh, they were getting associate bonuses that would pay them up to sometimes up to 20% what their base salary was, what the, not base salary, but what they were making off of percentages. So the lead and, doc was getting a rev share though. So for every dollar that came into the pra- into their shingle, their practice, yeah. they were getting, uh, you know, whatever, like pennies on the dollar for what came in the door, right? Well, they, they were getting, look, everybody had some form, form of profit, profit sharing component, yeah. e- even the mid-levels. We're you getting talk, some because one of the most that's great though. I was just couple before you go again. That's that is in some ways that is equity. It's almost like a kind of, that's almost like a commission structure. That's great. Go of ahead, Eddie. They're, yeah, they're the, taking something I, from the I, top. The other thing that I noticed so you brought me into your office. You're like, you can hang out, you could do whatever. You, I, obviously, I didn't have a license, so I'm not going to work. And <laughs> so I sat with the front desk, and, and one of the, the things I mean, we take us, you know, in 2007, 8, 9, and 10. Dentistry itself was highly profitable. So you didn't have to be as efficient as you were. And you could be profitable, if really profitable. And that's that why private equity stepped in because yeah. they saw something and they saw so that was the catch, pressure. right? Yeah. And that was, but the fact that you were so profitable and so efficient, I and mean, very few businesses will ever be able to replicate that in the dentistry world. But one of the things that I noticed was how you trained your front desk that they needed a certain number to target every day. I don't know if you remember that. I remember you you showing me that. And yeah, I, I continued, but I liked that. I liked that there well, was let, let me let me let me make a comment on that. They had okay. they had visuals on how productive the office was, but we never had monetary goals. That was never even okay. up until the time that I sold the business. Um, or you know, partnered with private equity, uh, that we never had, this is the target goal. But if you produced this amount, there was going to be a profit sharing component here. And so look, you know, when it comes to, as you start scaling and become bigger, when your net enterprise value is, is, is a big number, 
you know, then you start getting the scrutiny of, 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 of um, you know, organizations, uh, you know, w- within the state and so forth. You got to be careful. Yes. You don't want to monetize children. No. And so, you know, if yeah. you heard about the story with uh, Cool cool Smiles back in your part of town, yeah. uh, they were getting a lot of heat because they were, you know, they may have been conducting some business practices that maybe others didn't understand or appreciate. But one of the questions was, you know, do you pay your doctors a flat base salary or do you pay them a commission? And the idea was that if you paid them a commission, a production off of, or a percentage off production, you're actually monetizing children. Just pay them a base salary. So we were a business that was paying, paying a production based, but we put systems in place where we knew that our doctors were not monetizing and if we seen that, we, they would not be a part of the practice, yes. but we still needed to motivate the doctors because in pediatric dentistry or in dentistry alone, if you pay a doctor a flat base salary, you know, unless you know that doctor real well, a lot of doctors can just skimmy through the day and just collect the base salary, not really produce. Yeah. So it's a really fine line. And it's probably one of the reasons why I knew that, you know, I wanted to exit the business because I knew that the complexities of of regulations and compliances were going to catch up. And, and I didn't want to deal with that. I didn't want to deal with that type. That's kind of part of doing business, especially in California. Oh yeah. That, you know, you're going to be prone to, you know, mediations and litigations, things like that. Thankfully for me, I didn't go through any of that, but you know, I just didn't want that complexity in life. My, my, my ambition was my intentions were certain defined intentions. And I didn't want to get it to the point where I was now highly monetizing the business you know, for whatever reason. Right. But yeah, you know, those doctors were highly motivated. They had a, a compensation. That's my son back there. Hi. They had a compensation. Um, I forget what the compensation program was, but it's typically what you pay like high end executives yeah. um, uh, to uh, keep them kind of uh, golden handcuffs into, into the, into the business model. So mm-hmm. they were getting paid quite well. And I think that, you know, things have changed obviously, obviously since I've, I've left and uh, sold to private equity, but it was really successful and it kept those doctors there doing what they, um, you know, what they did best, which was providing uh, those types of services. But, you know, as we scaled and as we grew, you know, standardizing business operations was important. You know, we did a lot of grassroots marketing efforts and we were working completely on efficiencies. You know, efficiencies were real big, you know, doing behind the scenes stuff, you know, negotiating contracts, you know, with vendors, if we dealt with vendors or going to manufacturers, getting our, all our procurement in, dealing with radiological equipment, you know, as, you know, as a, uh, as a vendor ourselves, so we can get deep discounts on those types of things were uh, extremely, uh, extremely beneficial for us. It allowed us to operate. Uh, when we went to market, you know, our profit margins were, were unheard of in the dental industry but they were also kind of unheard of in just the medical and healthcare industry in general. And that was told to me by multiple uh, strategic and uh, financial uh, potential buyers. You know, they're really impressed by that. And, and it really took a lot of, you know, work where me as a CEO and founder understood all the idiosyncrasies of the business. And what I found out is that only an owner founder could be that, you know, invested and that, and typically when you sell, they don't do that. Oh yeah. They're, no, they're they more inclined on managing chaos more and, and you're not going to get the efficiencies, right? No. And you lose it. Yeah. You lose the whole You lose thing. it, right? Because when you do that, 
you know, an investor will come to you and say, Jeff, you did a phenomenal job. Great. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't even in debt when I took, when I took my, my business to, to market, I was not writing on debt. Right. Yeah. But investors, VCs, PEs, whatever, they write on debt all the time. They don't well, build and they don't build. They just kind of manage and grow. And they tell, and you, you're going to be told, Jeff, you did great in this 10 years. You built this coming 10 years. You got a big enterprise value. Just do the same thing, but do it four times as fast. Yeah. Right? It's not and possible. So, right. as, a, as an owner founder that understood the increases of the idiosyncrasies of the business, I'm like, yeah, you can do that, but you're going to do it in a way where I don't want to, you know, I, I don't know if I want to be a part of that. Well, let's stop have, it right have, there. Because that was like the 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 shortest thirty second story I think I've ever heard. Yeah, and I, and I just went through like a. a and you a probably have like a million other calls. We're not even through the story, so we're gonna have to have you on again. But let's get let's do these uh, like fire round questions. Well, that's sure. uh, before we get to the fire round. Oh, before you we get to the fire round. Let's wrap it real quick. Uh, Jeff, I think that was phenomenal. Um, a few things I heard that I want to highlight for the audience. Right. Yeah. Um, Having that provider mindset for the big umbrella, great. Uh, love the cutting out the middleman lesson about that. That's phenomenal. And I also think that it's important. I mean, maybe this is more of a hindsight thing, but you just never know what's going to happen when you stick your neck out. And let's just kind of like say when you left the insurance gig to pursue dentistry, that was a sticking your neck out moment. Knocking on the door um, at the at the dentistry school in Philly uh, was a sticking your neck out moment. And signing this gargantuan lease in Sacramento was an enormous stick your neck out moment. And so sometimes you stick your neck out in life and it doesn't quite work out, but a lot of times yeah. it becomes that pivotal moment that changes your life. And so I, um, I think that those are some highlights that I got here. Uh, I think that as Ziggy said, we'll have to have you back on the show because I know yeah. that you did, you were able to uh, partner uh, with private equity on the practice a couple of years ago. And there's like a whole nother, like, you know, Jeffrey Saladin 2.0 yep. that happened after that. Right. Yeah. It was uh, kind of an interesting transition. Yeah. Yeah. I get. And, and I think there's a lot to talk about there. I, I'll tease it a little bit in that, like, you know, changing the mindset of being a pediatric dentist owner to getting a sizable check. And now, okay, like having that so now what moment that a lot of docs or other business owners listening may be afraid of. I have, I have some friends that are dentistry now that are worried about that so now what moment that hits, yeah. maybe in your 40s and your 50s where you get a, a phenomenal windfall. And it's like, well, shit, I'm going to do it myself now. You know, yeah. uh, so let's get, let's probably not going to answer, put a pin in that because I think sure. that that could be a phenomenal way to lead into our next conversation when we have you on the show again. So uh, that was awesome. Yeah. Uh, Iggy, why don't you kick it off with the fire round? I, all right. Well, let's do it now. What book or film changed your life? But before we answer that, you may have a book that's coming out on your life or a movie, <laughs> you know, yeah, this, this is pretty good stuff. I hope I'm like the, the hero and like the, you know, the, the, whoever plays me is going to be very, you know, very handsome and very attractive and, no, we get, and I love the Cooper. <laughs> we could ask that as the next question. Yeah, I, don't movie, the actor, the <laughs> I don't know. I don't know about that. You know, I, you know, movie, um, my or favorite, my favorite movie. I mean, look, I mean, it's nothing, nothing inspirational. I love the usual suspects. I can watch oh, that yeah. movie. A thousand times. I mean, uh, Kaiser Sizzo and just, you know, the, just that walk that at the end of the movie where he just kind of changes his walk. Just phenomenal. It's just like fooling yeah. everybody. It's great. Maybe I fooled people throughout my career. Maybe I don't know or fooled myself. I don't think but, so. 
but it was, it, you know, that, I thought that was a really cool movie. Yeah. Um, you know, I read books. Um, I'm reading a biography right now uh, about, uh, you know, individuals that, um, you know, have uh, went through really tough experiences in life and they have become, you know, well-respected people in, in the community. So those are just inspiring type types of things. Uh, you know, finance and money. I like kind of adventurous stories. There's a book that I, that I read recently called um, the, um, gosh, I forget, I got to pull it up, but it's about IMF funding throughout the world and how that's predatory and how, you know, special agents go into governments and get governments indebted and, uh, you know, just, you know, I kind of forget the name. It was a deep state the, stuff, right? Yeah. Really cool stuff. So reading about that. No, nothing much. I mean, I, I've been doing a lot more reading on blockchain technology. Yeah. I'm thinking about getting into that. It's the I've, future. Uh, yeah, I've been. Yeah. I have weekly meetings with um, some uh, well-known guys in the in the tech world, talking about blockchain and and cryptocurrency. Looking maybe to invest in that, but uh, you know, yeah. you know, not changing much world, else. right? A little bit, a little bit of travel. Looking at travel, thinking about moving out of the country, maybe. Well, before we, well, that gets me my, my next question, right? The next fire round question is, uh, if you had another 10 minutes, I don't know about 10 hours a week, but not 10 minutes. <laughs> 10 if minutes, you had another 10, you 10 minutes. Yeah, you could mean, yeah. If you had another 10 hours a week, what would you do with it? Oh, definitely. I would spend more time with my family. I mean, this has been great uh, selling the business. I've spent time with my family, watching my, I have a two-year-old, a six-year-old, an eight-year-old, an 11-year-old. My father was in there during those ages. He, you know, he, like every other father was working nine to five. I've had a great opportunity where I could spend time with my kids. If I had more hours in the day, I mean, I just, I'd spend more time with them. Uh, definitely, uh, you know, get more involved in their education and sports. Uh, my son's a great soccer player, get more involved in that, do more handiwork around the house. I mean, spend more time with my wife, you know, make, try to make people happy, you know, uh, that's what I would do. I wouldn't get, I wouldn't go more heavily into business. No. Right. I mean, you know, look, when, when I decided to sell my business because I want to reset priorities in my life and my priorities yeah, was my family, it was charity and it was spirituality. And then, and all the other stuff, like, you know, it was just kind of flipped, you know, first part of your life, it's all yeah. about education, doing for yourself, getting a business, making money. Well, at some point you have to make a change. And I didn't want to make a change when I was in my 60s and say, oh, well, I need to make a change now. My kids are already grown up, you know, my wife, is yeah. the, whatever the case may be. So I, that was my goal. And um, yeah, I'm living part of that, which is, which is good. That's amazing. Yeah. So that, this follows it. So what do you do for fun? I mean, it, it, you always have a smile on your face now. Every time I talk to you. In residency, you weren't like this. Only when I made a joke. Because I'm not, I'm, not managing, I'm not managing five, four, five hundred people anymore. Right. <laughs> it's like managing people is tough. It's not easy. Yeah. So, you know, um, now I'm just managing myself and working with my family. And I, you know, I have this, this real estate entity land development that I'm doing with, with four other guys, which is great. It's a lot easier to deal with. So, I mean, look, right now I'm getting back to uh, wellness, you know, getting back to spirituality. So uh, that's what I'm doing to keep, keep keeping myself uh, happy. You know, I'll wake up every morning. I'll do some really intense stretching. And I mean, I mean, just from that perspective, I'm telling you, I didn't, I forgot how stretching just makes you feel good. Oh yeah. You know, releasing all those endorphins, whatever it might be, but I do that daily. So I'm going back to working out again. I lost 15 pounds since I sold my business. Right. I've always been pretty fit, but lost touch with that, you know, growing a business, getting back into that, 
spending more time uh, with uh, community, you know, and so that's what I'm doing. Things that I never thought that I would enjoy doing, like doing handiwork around the house. It's like, this is great. <laughs> this is awesome. Yeah. I love this. You know, last great. Year, when, you, when you have time, it's interesting what time can create for you. You know, when yeah. you've got time, it's like, hey, you know, I actually enjoy painting. Look at that. Um, Money doesn't buy you happiness, but it might buy you a little bit of time. Yes. And that yeah. time might make you a little Time happy. gives you the opportunity yeah. to discover happiness. Yeah. yeah you know, you know, you know yeah. that, that's, you know, we rented an RV last year. There you go. And we went out in Northern California and did, I, you know, I was never an RV guy. I mean, that's just like, so not me. We did it. It was the greatest, greatest experience I ever did. We want to do it again. Now I know why guys buy these million dollar RVs because it's a hell of a lot of fun. Oh, yeah. right? So just doing different things and stuff like that. But, uh, you know, that, that leads me positive. to the next one. Where do you see yourself in five years? Five years. I, you know, look, I'd love to live in a foreign country. Hmm. And I've been looking into that for a number of years. I want my children to be a part of something a little bit different. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so I see myself probably, I've been looking at Istanbul in Turkey, something a little exotic, you know, between Asia and, and Europe. Uh, I thought about maybe moving out to Malaysia. Uh, oh, wow. Those are two places that, that uh, I'm seriously thinking about, you know, having an experience with. So, That's awesome. you know, nowadays you can run you know, your business from anywhere in the world. And um, why not learn uh, a different language, uh, some different culture, cultural aspects, different food. You know, I think the greatest thing that my parents ever did for me was that when I was young, they would travel overseas. And that gave me a very big global mindset to connect with people of different ethnicities and cultures and, and religion. Excellent. So when you were a kid, I, you kind of answered this question, but when you were a kid, what did you want to be when you grew up? God, I don't remember when I was a kid what I wanted to be when I wanted to grow up. So it wasn't it wasn't a sports guy. It was I think, you know, it was just just having something to do, I guess. I don't know. I mean, I, I didn't I don't remember telling my parents I wanted to do this or that. Yeah, yeah. You know, I don't have that recollection. You know, it's just open mindset to it. Just right? open mindset. Yeah, I okay. didn't have that. I like cool. it. Uh, what is one, this is the last one, what is one bucket list item you that you have not accomplished, let, accomplished yet that you'd like to accomplish before you die? Well, it's probably more of a spiritual question for me. Mm -hmm. um, I'd love to um, learn how to fluently read Arabic. Oh. And um, uh, I'd love to travel to Mecca one day mm. and have that experience of being around two or three million people circling, you know, that, that the Kaaba and just getting a sense of being a part of the universe. Uh, so that, you know, that's, that's definitely one of my bucket list items. Will I ever have a chance to do that? I hope so. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm sure that's not for everybody. That's, that's awesome. Though. That's great. <laughs> that Thank you for sharing that. Uh, all right. Well, well, uh, Jeffrey Saladin, how do folks get a hold of you if they'd like to hear more about what you have to offer? Uh, I think that David said you might have a book coming out or other, other means. No, I made that part up. I don't know. If oh, you made it up. Cool. Well, I think you have to, you have to write a book now. Great. David now has now obligated you to write a book. Dr. Iggy, Iggy, Iggy did. Iggy so. and I are working on it. So yeah, you guys, you know, anybody can contact me via email. Uh, drjeffsaladin at gmail.com. That's probably the easiest way to get a hold of me. Uh, but definitely look forward to the next session. Would love to talk to you oh, about yeah. my prep PE uh, exit and how I built that up and then getting into uh, another big demanding niche uh, mm -hmm. here in California, capitalizing on that as well. Saladin uh, 2.0. Oh, um, 
Well, Dr. Saladin, just people want to spell it. It's S-A-L-A-D-I-N. Dr. Saladin, thank you so much for being on the show. It has been an awesome having you here and we look forward to having you back soon. Hey, Matt, Nagy, thank you very much. I appreciate it, guys. Looking forward to seeing you guys again. Thank you. All right, thanks, guys. Man, that was a great show. Dr. Eggie, what'd you think? Holy cow. That just, (laughs) like, it blew my mind away. I, I... you know, you go to residency with somebody and you think you know what's going on in their head, but then you leave because he was a year below me in, in my residency. And so I leave and then all of a sudden he grows this empire. Yeah. And I didn't realize he was growing it while he was in his second year of residency. Incredible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think that was amazing. I, I just love outside the, how outside the box uh, a lot of the conversation was. And I re- really about how uh, Dr. Saladin developed a, um, what, what I would say, like a really great standard that what we talked about, the umbrella um, of, of, uh, of just that he developed that everybody could stand under, meaning like I'm the provider for all these people, my family, my patients, all these other docs, all these uh, mid-level people that are working for me. And I'm responsible for all that. And I think it's a, it's a big mantle to take, but, uh, but he, he explained it well and very humbly. So, um, love the episode guys. If you love what we do here, don't forget to check us out at mattneggy.com and give us a five-star review on iTunes or your favorite podcast downloading app. Thanks for listening to the Healthy, Wealthy, and Wise Guys show with Matt and Dr. Iggy. We hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you like what we do, please check us out at mattniggy.com. Thanks for listening again and have a great day. Thank you.